This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Azim Azar. Azim is a serial entrepreneur, a journalist, startup investor and technologist, and is the founder of Exponential View, a weekly email with 200,000 subscribers, including many of the leading lights in tech. His new book, Exponential, is a fascinating look at the rise of rapid growth technologies and industries. And really, it's a must read for all of us right now if we want to keep pace with the rapid changes happening right now. And perhaps even more importantly, what's to come. So in this episode, we talk about exponential technologies, and it's not all about AI. Azim talks us through what he calls the exponential gap. We talk about the future of work, adapting to shifts in power, and whether he's optimistic or pessimistic for the future. This is Azim Azar. Azim Azar, welcome to Beyond Busy. How are you doing? I am doing super well, thank you, Graham. I have to say, when I got the the pitch to have you on the podcast, I was I was fairly intimidated, um, I have to be honest, by having you on, just given the the huge just intellectual range and complexity of what you're talking about. But what I'll say is you just you explain it all so well in the book that I actually feel like I can have a proper conversation with you about this. So this is the book Exponential. Thank um, you. And uh, I just think it's a, it's a really fascinating book. So let's start off. What I, what I generally do at the start of Beyond Busy is ask people to just tell us a bit of a story about their own uh, background and career. And the way I thought I would do it with you would uh, be to um, talk about a little quote from the book. So you talk about this idea that intellectual life in the UK is split between the worlds of literature and the world of technology, and increasingly they just don't understand each other. Mm. And maybe this is your USP, but you've kind of got one foot in both worlds. Um, So do you want to just start with just a bit of background about like who you are and what you do, but from that kind of standpoint, so your sort of foot in the world of literature and then your foot in the world of technology. Yeah, I'd I'd love to do that. No, thank you. Uh, You know, it it starts from where I was born and and when I was born. Uh, I was born in Zambia in uh, 1972, and my dad was working out there uh, as an accountant, but he's a, a rural economist by training. And he was working for some bit of the British government to help Zambia in its, its development. And he was building some economic institution. And that's a bit social science in, in a sense. And my, you know, my mum was interested in economics and she had been a, a university lecturer and a teacher. Uh, and so there's a little bit of the sort of letters over there. Uh, but I was also born uh, the year after the uh, Intel 4004 microprocessor was was released. I, I knew about <laughs> that fact much later. But I grew up in the 70s with space opera, science fiction and computers turning up in, in media. Uh, and, you know, by, by nature, I'm a uh, more of a scientist and more of a technologist. And but my my family kind of heralds more from the social sciences and my you know sisters were lawyers and studied English and things like that. And so I, I 
from a young age sat between these two um, these two uh, arenas, and that kept on through through school and through university. Uh, as a uh, you know high school student, I spent a lot of time doing the sciences, and we had great computing facilities, and I got to play with computing. But I was also um, a little bit insecure about the fact that kind of scientists were seen, particularly by British culture at the time, as a bit sort of nerdy and dorky. You know, Sir Clive Sinclair was, uh, you know, the, the, the hot uh, bod of technology. Um, and, and I think that insecurity and, and a long term interest in, in current affairs uh, kept me interested in politics and economics and history. Uh, and, and so when I went off to university, I actually started studying law. I changed after a year or so uh, rather than the sciences. And through my, um, my, my life, I have always really occupied both of those domains. And it's never really clear if you look at the book on my bedside, whether I'm going to be reading, uh, as I am at the moment, uh, the book on uh, on Jennifer Doudna, the inventor of, of CRISPR, or whether I'll be reading a, a history book. Um, I'm not sure I'm particularly good at either of the subjects, but, you know, you do something often enough for more than 40 years and you get some fluency uh, in it. So it's not done through uh, design by any means, uh, Graham. It's just uh, it, it's just been the story uh, of my of my life. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to just pick out a couple of um uh, experiences that you've had in your working life. So um, on the technology side, so you've, you're the founder of, is it four startups? It's four startups, and yeah. And you've had e exits um, to Amazon and um, and Facebook among those no, as well, right? No, the exits to Amazon were companies I'd invested in and worked at. Uh, my okay. uh, The company of mine that um, had a sort of useful exit was bought by a business called Brandwatch, which is a marketing technology company that has now been bought by somebody else. You know, that's how this happens. Uh, the, the turtles eat the yeah. turtles. Yeah. And what what did you learn from those experiences? And so obviously you've got experiences of being a, a founder of startups, but also an investor in them. Um, how would you describe that world right now? And what have you well, learned along the way? Startups are super, super hard. Uh, they are really, really difficult. Um, they're not like normal businesses. Uh, I, writing a book is hard. It's something that you understand very well with all the success you've had. Uh, I would say the hardest moments um, of my writing my book were a bit like a typical Tuesday afternoon uh, running my startup. Uh, and so the depths of uh, the emotional range you get taken through um, in an afternoon or a morning, let alone over the week or the month, is is enormous. Um, and the reason it's it's challenging is that no one knows the answer because you're building something that hasn't been built before. So not only do you not know what you need to build, you don't know how to build it. And you have to bring a bunch of people on that journey with you and you have to motivate them. You have market challenges, you have technical problems and you have people problems. Uh, and at the same time, you've got to hit milestones, given the funding that you have available. Uh, and it's really um, it's really intense. Mm. And the other thing that you know is that you know that you're not special, that the fact that you have figured out that this technology could meet this market need and create a new product means that a thousand other people have figured, figured that out. And at least half of them are 
much smarter than you. Mm, and of those yeah. half who are smarter, a third have built successful companies before. And of that third who've built successful companies before, and so on and so on it goes. So you you find yourself in this really um, complex domain that is very, very uh, demanding in, in all sorts of ways. And then on top of that, essentially, you're a businessman. And like any businessman, whether you run the greengrocer uh, on the high street or an insurance company uh, or you're running an airline, the emails never stop and you never stop thinking about these problems. But they're pretty fundamental and they're, they're pretty critical. So it's a really hard uh, thing to, to do. I'm not special in having done it. Um, I've learned a lot from having done it. I respect the people a great deal who who do do it and do it uh, time and again. Do you do you feel like you know you were just talking there about how a lot of the the other competitors will be smarter than you and they'll have run businesses before and all that? Do you think there's a sense that do you think generally the cream rises to the top or do you think there's a lot of luck? How do you describe that? sort of landscape in terms of success and which, which companies ultimately make it? Well, which if don't. I knew uh, that uh, secret uh, to, to the economy, that would in of itself be sort of transformative. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I don't really know. Um, I think you, you identify um, the many, many different qualities that founders uh, can, can have. I was very fortunate to meet some amazing founders in, in the, over the last 25 years. And I spent three years working with some exceptional investors uh, called um, a venture capital fund called Kindred, who are really people-driven uh, investors. And I learned an awful lot from them. Yeah. And what I noted was that there was no real template or caricature um, but there were certain types of things you looked for. You know, you looked for a kind of relentless energy. You looked for a person who was a fountain, not a drain. You looked for somebody who had some stamina. You looked for somebody who was really thinking in tremendous detail about this problem and could articulate it and articulate where it might go. Um, but you also looked for someone who was who was coachable. Uh, and there were many other qualities, and it certainly wasn't a uh, a checklist so I think in general, while there's a lot of luck uh, in, in startups, the ones that rise to the top are run by people who are very, very capable. Um, that doesn't mean they were going to succeed. Um, uh, and it doesn't mean they were more capable than people whose companies failed. But they, there's not a lot of luck. I mean, it's not that you just grab some random off the street and you know, there's a chance they'll create a successful business. They, that, that, won't, that won't happen. Yeah, interesting. Um, so let's just, before we get off this, this whole topic of the, the intellectual split between literature and technology. So you've also, on the other side of that, you've been a journalist, you're a fellow of the RSA, you did PPE at Oxford, um, and also advised people like the World Economic Forum and um, PwC and Venture Capital, as you mentioned. So when you think about literature and, te and technology, why do you think there is this, you know, this kind of, and when we say mm. literature, I guess we're yeah. also talking policymakers, politicians, um, those people who are making decisions about the economy and the way that we live versus technology. Why do you think there's this, this, this kind of disconnect and why don't they understand each other better? Mm. It's a really great question. I mean, the, the analysis first comes from um, C.P. Snow, who uh, was uh, somebody who uh, sat across both those um, 
areas uh, in a, from a lecture he gave yeah, 60 years or so uh, ago, maybe even in 70 now. Uh, and it was really about, I, th I think it's to do with uh, cultural heritage and how we talk about the things that are uh, important and what it's okay to say and get away with. Uh, and so when I created my first company, which was just before or during the dot-com boom, I remember the CEO of one of the very, very big uh, British retailers saying, I don't know how to use a computer and you do it as a matter of, of pride. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not a, mm -hmm. an expert in here, but this is just my sort of anecdotal view, which is that in the, in the UK, for some reason, for a long time, we dumbed down science and technology, despite this, these incredible research universities. And we played up um, the, the sort of polit politic political game and the policy game. And we, we played down enterprise as well in our media, in our reporting, in the kind of heroes that we uh, that we created and we caricatured people as as boffins um and 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 weirdos frankly uh and so that that then i think re gets reflected in um in kind of cultural norms it gets structured in schools and in universities uh and and so the cycle continues so i think what we've done recently which is to argue in the uk for much much more STEM, science, technology, economics, and mathematics is kind of helpful from an industrial standpoint, right? We're trying to get people who have these, these very applicable skills, uh, more of them, but it actually doesn't tackle the, the more holistic interdisciplinary thinking that I think people need to have, which is the need to have an appreciation of history and of ethics and of, uh, you know, politics and, and, and how politics reflects in the world and they need to understand um, the nature of art and how art turns a mirror on us uh, and can be very, very insightful and just frankly just enjoyable alongside having functional competencies in the domains of science and technology uh, and, and maths. And one of the things that's come mm. out of COVID is that we all now have a much better understanding of DNA, RNA, and immune systems that we did going in, right. arguably, yeah. as right-thinking citizens, we should have already had that level of understanding back in that 2019 because that is modern literacy. Uh, and and so, you know, this doesn't for me get tackled by funneling students into STEM. This is much more about saying, um, you know, what are the skills and the knowledge that somebody who has resources and wants to be active as a citizen needs to have, and I do think they need. The, the, the critical thinking that has accompanied this sort of interdisciplinary approach. Mm, I love that sort of, the, as you describe it, like the sort of interplay between, you know, art, uh, holding up a mirror and giving us the guidance around ethics and stuff. And then obviously just the, uh, just the sort of driving progress that we get from science. I just think it's, it's, it's such a lovely mishmash as well to, to think about it in that way. And, and so many, um, artists were scientists and so many scientists were artists. I mean, the obvious one is, uh, you know, is da Vinci, um, of course. Uh, but there is a really important um, 
relationship with the humanistic uh, dimension uh, of mm. of a lot of this that we I think we we miss in society if we think that we can turn everything into a machine and engineer our way uh, out of it. And I think that's what, roughly speaking, the, the the arts is extremely good at. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like a sort of like a, an undercurrent of the book, and something that I just kept thinking about as I was reading it was was just about power and sort of powerlessness of people versus the power of people. And that just felt like a really sort of strong thing, which we'll maybe come back to and just get mm -hmm. onto a bit more. So let's yeah. just talk about a couple of the definitions here. So the answer kind of surprised me when I um, read the chapter, but do you want to just talk about what are exponential technologies? Yeah. So, um, you know, if we think about a technology uh, like the like the car uh, or the internal combustion engine, um, you know, as people work with it, uh, every year the next internal combustion engine should be better in some way, and and by better it should be perhaps faster for the same price, right? So your price performance uh, improves, and most of the technologies we've dealt with in the world. Um, do improve, uh, and they, they, those improvements compound over years. But the annual improvement is quite small. It's it's like our current savings accounts, right, where we're getting 0.1% interest. Now, you and I yeah. are men of a certain age, and we remember the days you could get 10% interest uh, in a savings account. And I say an exponential technology is a technology which um, improves at 10% or more on a compounding basis every year for many, many uh, years, decades, in fact. Uh, and the reason that I choose that is because uh, it, you very much ra uh, get into a point where you get so much more, but within living memory. So while cars, yeah. the, the efficiency of a car engine has improved since the 1890s, it did so really quite slowly. And frankly, most of us don't really remember how much less efficient cars were uh, you know, 15 years ago. But if you look at computer chips, uh, computer chips essentially double in performance uh, every couple of years for the same price. Uh, it's a 41% annualized improvement. And that is really, really remarkable. It means that you know, for the same dollar cost, uh, you, know, you, will, you will get uh, hundreds or thousands or millions of times more computer processing if you uh, in 15 years' time or 20 years' time. Uh, and that has really, really unsettling uh, effects. Uh, what it essentially means is that something that is today too expensive to do in 10 or 15 years' time will be so cheap we won't even think about it. And that's why I'm mm. holding up my iPhone yeah. right now. Many of us have supercomputers sitting in kitchen drawers that we no longer use. And I say they're supercomputers yeah, right. because an iPhone 6 is more powerful than the most powerful computers of my teenage years anywhere in the world. And that yeah. is, yeah. in a sense, the heart of that, the exponential age, is that we have many technologies that are generally applicable that are improving at these exponential rates. Do you want to just talk about those kind of less less traditional, less, less well-known exponential technologies? Yeah, I mean, you know, the one we all know is is the, the chip and, and Moore's law. And, and uh, you know, in the book, I talk about actually the the kind of limits of Moore's law as, as something to help us understand uh, why chips get, get faster. But what, we, what I found in my research over the last uh, six years was that there were lots of other technologies that I put in three rough families, um, energy, biology, and uh, manufacturing, 
that we're also getting seeing exponential improvements. Um, so if you take uh, if you take energy, um, it turns out that uh, the amount of power you can get um, from uh, a solar grid, right, that's taking sunlight and turning it into electricity. Um, for a given dollar is improving at, at an exponential rate. It's in the 20s of percent. And I'm so sorry. I, there are so many numbers in the book that I can't ever always remember the exact number, but <laughs> no, right. please, you know, buy the book, read it. It's, it's in there. Um, or, or if you take a look at something like lithium-ion batteries, um, for more than a decade, the amount of storage capacity you get uh, for every dollar of lithium-ion battery you buy has increased by 19% per annum. Um, and so that is uh, that's also an exponential technology. So it's really um, interesting that these technologies within the energy space, there are many examples where they're seeing these exponential improvements, which means an exponential price decline. And it means something over the course of a few years goes from being too expensive to being cheaper than the alternative, which is what has happened with wind-powered electricity versus uh, fossil fuel-powered electricity. So the energy domain is is one, and it's super, super important. Um, it means that today the cheapest sources of electricity anywhere in the world are, are renewable, um, and they're only going to get cheaper. And we're going to see the same curves happening in many types of storage. The one that's most bonkers, the <laughs> uh, technical term there, bonkers, is uh, what's happening in the realm of, of biology. So many of us, biology was this kind of weird, is it a science? Is it not a science? You know, why are we throwing a quadrat in a field and counting insects, right? That's what I remember of biology. And in the last 30 years, uh, biology has transformed into an incredibly uh, complex, nuanced, quantitative science um, through our understanding of um, the gene, the genome, proteins, protein engineering, the way the genome expresses itself um, through epigenetics and a whole set of other things where we've take, been able to take a kind of engineering and systems approach to this amazing miasma of things that, that make us us. And, and so within the, the, the realm of biology, there is a set of technologies, and I'll just pick out one, which, is, uh, which are improving at exponential rates. So the first complete human genome sequence uh, was delivered sort of in June 2000. It had taken about 10 months to come together. And this first draft of our genetic script had cost about $300 million. And it needed some additional refinement and a bit of polishing for another 150 million bucks. So it cost around $500 million, maybe a billion dollars to sequence the first uh, human genome. And it actually was kind of incomplete. And it's only been in recent weeks we've, we've finished that task. By August 2019, the cost to sequence uh, human genome had dropped to $942. So that was uh, an enormous improvement, more than a 100,000-fold improvement in, yeah. in 18 years. Yeah. Uh, and what happens when that, um, that occurs is that you take something that only governments will do once in a while because it costs half a billion dollars in something that costs a thousand bucks, um, which can be done much more often. And it's still getting cheaper. We've seen some people claim a hundred dollars uh, to sequence human genome in, in 2020, 2021. Um, and that price will dri drive further and further down towards you know, a dollar or less. We only need our genome sequenced once anyway. So at some point, it'll just be obvious to sequence everyone's genomes for whatever use we choose to, 
to, to put to it. And what's interesting about um, why that happened, why that price decline happened, um, partly it was related to a number of different exponential technologies in computing. So um, reading the human genome uh, takes a lot of storage, and storage was an exponential technology. Uh, processing it takes a lot of... Because it's just like billions of numbers, it's right? It's billions so of numbers, yeah. When yeah. You start well, it's about billi the... billions of letters, right? <clears throat> A, T, G's and C's. that you need to store that. Yeah, yeah. Gattaca, if you remember the film. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of storage, um, and it's a lot of processing. But we also got really, really good at producing the chemicals, and those got better. And the combination of all of that is what made... Uh, allowed the price to decline 100,000 times and why it will decline another few hundred times over the coming, the coming years. And that's really um, remarkable because you'd never think that something as complex and wet and messy as a, a, you know, a, a, the, a, the genome could lend itself to an exponential technology. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt the podcast, which you know I don't do very often, and that must mean I've got something very important to share with you. So what I want to share is I've got these two really big events coming up and I would love you to join me. The first is the Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass. It's a face-to-face, -face, in real life event. And uh, it's, it's always typically a small group, so no more than about 30 people. And we're in Islington, at Lyft in Islington. It's on Friday, October the 15th. And we'll be walking through all the stuff from my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. My best-selling book, over 100,000 copies sold. We've been in, in some of the biggest companies in the world, from Google to Barclays to British Airways to Disney. We've been, we've been all over the place. And we are bringing this stuff to you. So if you want to come and get involved, it's Friday the 15th of October 2021. Lyft in Islington. And it's one day with me, basically, walking you through all those different key habits of productivity. We talk about capturing information, how to organize stuff, doing weekly reviews, how to get over procrastination, email overload. It's all there during the day. So if that sounds of interest, if you're a fan of my stuff and you want to, you know, really go deep in terms of implementing a lot of this stuff for yourself, perhaps you've read Productivity Ninja, but just never really got around to it. And you just want a, a day with me to really start to make some of those things stick, or you've got particular questions, uh, then yeah, the Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass is probably for you. And there's also still some early bird tickets. There's also discount tickets if you work in the NHS, if you work for a charity, or if you're on your own dollar, basically, as a freelancer. Um, so that's all done on an honesty basis. So just basically book whichever ticket applies to you. And if you go to grahamalcott.com and then click the little button at the top for masterclasses, you'll find all the details and be able to book your place on that one. And then if you can't join us in London, then we're doing an online thing, which again, I do I do this once a year. It's called Six Weeks to Ninja. And this year it starts on Thursday, the 4th of November, 2021. It's a couple of hours on a Thursday evening. And the idea is that we again run through all the same kind of stuff, but over six weeks, nice WhatsApp group going on to keep everybody accountable as well. And, uh, you know, really um, it's a chance to, uh, to go through it at, quite a relaxed pace um i sort of put everyone through their paces in terms of um what we do during the two hours but doing it over six weeks i think is a really nice sustainable way to make a lot of these new habits stick um so again that's thursday the 4th of november 2021 it's online so you can be anywhere in the world um it's seven basically 7 15 until 9 15 uk time 
Um, so we've had, you know, in the past, we've had people from Canada and the States and all kinds of places, uh, you know, mainline Europe kind of joining uh, as well. So six weeks to Ninja, Thursday, the 4th of November, 2021, and through to Thursday, the 9th of December, 2021. So if you want to get involved in those, grahamalcott.com. And then at the top of the site, you'll see uh, the page for masterclasses. And we'll also put all the details for that in the show notes as well. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, have a look in the show notes, uh, click the links through there and go and get your tickets. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, and that's the other thing you you say in the book is just this this idea of as they all combine, then they, it's all kind of helping each other to to get cheaper and easier. Just one, one other thing on the human genome thing. So I know a little bit about this because my son has a, a very rare genetic disorder. He's He's the only person in the world with a particular mosaicism on chromosome six oh, and wow. so on and so forth so it's kind of helpful for me to to know that because we can use that information to compare that to similar cases and stuff like that but presumably there's like hundreds of applications and endless applications of the human genome that we don't know about um or things that are happening now that are you know sort of on the cutting edge so where do you see that like when it gets so cheap and assuming what happens with that is like you say governments are not the only ones playing around with this stuff anyone with a startup can almost do that you know do that from their phone and and carry on with it so like what are some of the things that might start to happen with that as you understand that technology you know i mean i think that science fiction has given us some some ideas uh of where this might might all go i mean therapeutic good and bad right (laughs) yeah exactly um you know therapeutics is um an obvious one personal uh uh, therapeutics for in- initially the very difficult and complicated uh, diseases, and gene therapies are, um, you know, complicated, expensive, uh, but increasingly effective. And in fact, there's been a there's been a genetically modified uh, sort of CRISPR based um, therapy that has reversed a particular type of blindness, for example. Um, so, so there's once you move down from therapies for for difficult and you know, life-altering conditions, and they get cheaper. You start to apply them to, um, you know, other types of of issues that people might have, um, and you might start to apply them to um, as one input into people's diet, for example. But you need, you know, you need to look at other things for diet. Um, but I think where it starts to become uh, a little bit nerve-wracking is when we look at um, the issues of genetic selection. So using low-cost genome mm. screens yeah. to look at very, very early 6-16-cell uh, um, embryos and figure out which ones are um, you know, healthier and deciding which ones to, to, to implant. And there's, um, there's a number of companies that use this technique. It's, um, it looks for something called a, a SNP, an SNP, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the chromosomes, and it can you can correlate that with the likelihood of things like extreme dwarfism or um, you know, aneuploidy or other types of Down syndrome things. But also some of these companies claim with the likelihood that you have someone who's tall or who's got a really high IQ. Um, and right now, that technology is mostly used at the tail end of IVF when through the IVF process, you end up with you know four or five viable um embryos you're only going to implant one and you might run a screen like this to take out the worst 
any of the embryos that have really, really severe life-threatening illnesses attached to them. So you, you implant a healthy one. Mm, but of course, yeah. parents will say, well, is one of those two healthy ones got higher IQ potential? Um, and and that's where you get onto the slippery slope. And, and then, of course, you get to kind of modification, right? That, that so um, where one Chinese scientist, Dr. Hay, um, you know, breached a bunch of protocols and he applied this CRISPR gene editing technique to um, some twins um, uh, to knock out a particular gene and, and make them resilient to a particular disease. And, you know, he he was the first to do it and others, others will do that. Um, and then I think the third area is slightly outside of the medical domain, but it's that, you know, if we've all had a genome sequence and we know my risk of Parkinson's or dementia or blindness or stroke um, from the genetic factors, uh, how does that then change the way that, say, the NHS interacts with me or my life insurer um, interacts with me? And do I lose that collective benefit? And we've made the assumption in insurance that actuaries who are underwriting the risk uh, only know so much, right? And soon they might know lot, lots more. So there are these sort of three little um, heebie-jeebie areas like of uh, selection, modification, and then, you know, this idea of being completely transparent from our genetic propensities. And I guess that leads us on quite nicely to actually just try, trying to explain what the gap is, right? So you talk about the exponential gap. Um, so do you maybe want want to just build on what we were just talking about there and just and just talk a bit more about what the exponential gap really means yeah i'd, I'd love to you know so so obviously these things are changing so quickly and um and and they're driven by the technology and by by entrepreneurs and scientists who are able to take advantage of it but the rest of us live in a world that is much much more linear that changes much more slowly and we don't necessarily understand that there is an ex there are exponential processes and we don't necessarily understand um what what the impact of those processes are and one question is well why don't we understand it and you know my i'm a bit blasé about this i, I explain it in over 20 pages or so but um that it's that we're really bad at maths that we don't see um exponential processes in the real world, our child goes from one to two to three to four with every year. They don't go from one year old to two year old to four years old to eight years old to 16 years old. We just don't, we see linear processes, we experience linear processes. And so there are probably evolutionary reasons why it's not in our makeup to naturally understand these very, very fast changing uh, processes. So we don't, we don't see how quickly things are, adapt, uh, are, are shifting. I mean, I use this example. Can I use my 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 rain and my Wembley example with you? The Wembley Stadium thing, yeah, cool. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I just use this example around um, you know the idea of a of a wet football match in England, which is not uncommon. And typically, late rain is pretty linear; it just sort of falls at the same kind of constant amount, maybe increases a bit and then quietens down. Imagine you're in, you know, Wembley Stadium and you're right at the top. You're about 40 metres above the ground and uh, a raindrop falls. And then a minute later, two raindrops fall. And then a minute after that, four raindrops fall. And you realise you've got exponential rain on your hands. Uh, and the question is, it's going to take you 30 minutes to get out of there into your car and drive away. So at what minute should you leave your seats? 
So after four minutes, you've got eight raindrops. And after five minutes, you've got 16. It's really not very much. I mean, raindrops are tiny. And it turns out that you have to get moving by minute, I should give it away, 17. Because uh, you need 30 minutes to get to the car. Because by the 47th minute, which is the moment you get to the car, rain will be dropping at 141 trillion drops per minute. Uh, and that will weigh 600 million litres of water uh, will weigh uh, a lot, 600 million kilograms uh, in, partic uh, uh, in practice. By the 50th minute, uh, 5 billion tonnes of water will fall from the sky. Uh, and so if you're going to have exponential rain forecast, it's best to stay just, at home. Yeah, umbrellas are not going to help you. <laughs> watch it on, watch the flattening on TV. And the thing is that we can come up with these sort of ideas, right? And there's yeah. this one about the right, grains of rice on the chessboard that has been around for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, but we're actually living at a time where these changes are happening very, very rapidly. And they're happening at the core technologies, then they're happening at the products and the services. And so... During the course of writing my book, TikTok went from being nothing to being the biggest app in the world. And the, 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 the challenge is that the institutions that we live our lives in, so the, the common habits, the fact that you queue when you go to the shops, if you're British at least, uh, the fact that we have the highway code and we have the, the UN and laws and uh, formal institutions and, and informal customs, those things accrete over time, they develop over time, and they change quite slowly by design. I mean, if they weren't, if they were changing really quickly, they wouldn't be institutions, they would be fads or crazes or ephemera. But we live our lives regulated by those institutions. And so the exponential gap for me is the gap between this fast rising curve of the exponential age and the technologies and the services built around it and the slow adaptation of the norms and practices and institutions that we take for granted in, in living our lives. And it sort of struck me as well that part of that exponential gap is this sort of transfer of power, right, from a lot more of that um, progress being seen through governments and organisations like the UN and policymakers and so on. And now you've got not only these enormous companies that have a lot of power, but also you've got startups that are also part, you know, linked into the scientific community that they're actually creating exponential growth themselves almost like under the radar and then it suddenly becomes the next TikTok or the, or the next new thing what do you think this is the big question I guess isn't it it's like what do you think governments should be doing about you know making sure Amazon pay their tax and making sure Facebook have better ethics what should be the way that as a society we interact with those those bigger companies in particular well, I think the important thing is uh, um, what I try to do in a number of the the chapters is to explain the actual cause, right? So explain the condition. We're used to seeing the symptoms um, yeah. and the symptom being that, uh, you know, Facebook seems to have way too much media power or Amazon doesn't pay its, its tax. The question then is to really go in to understand, I think, what the... Uh, what the cause is. If you want cheap pot shots, you worry about the symptoms. And uh, that's what the politicians often do. Um, and, and understanding those causes is about understanding the new rules of the exponential age. So the question is, why are these companies so huge? Uh, and the, the argument that I make is that 
in the um, in the pre-exponential age, the industrial age, there were forces of gravity that held uh, companies in in check. Uh, so, uh, if you were making uh, cars, it got progressively more expensive to source the steel. You know, the, the steel you bought for the millionth car was much more expensive than the the steel you bought for the first car. Uh, and you got that effect of diminishing uh, marginal returns. You also saw an organizational complexity. Mm. Companies would just get too big. And many of us re remember working for big companies where you couldn't do anything, really. Um, and, yeah. and so that made markets a little markets more competitive because companies couldn't get that big. So there would be more of them uh, and you wouldn't get that much market share. And if you did get a lot of market share, you'd probably have done something a bit a bit dodgy to get there. And certainly you would be smacked for, for, for doing it by, by regulators. In the exponential age, because of the nature of these of the companies, and I'll, I'll just pull on one idea, um, they don't have the the same force of gravity that holds them back. So one of the key things that these firms have is what's known as a network effect. It means that unlike the car company where every customer needing another car means more progressively more expensive steel, in a network age, um, network company of the exponential age, every new customer adds value to the other customers, another person you can message on Instagram. And that work, network effect means mm. that the rich get richer, yeah. the bigger companies get bigger. And so what we see is that exponential age firms are really dominant in their marketplace. Like what is the second biggest photo sharing site after Instagram? Is it still Flickr? I don't know. What is the second biggest? Is no, it well, I don't know either. Is Flickr I mean, still alive? What is the second biggest? No, no. I mean, you know, nobody like wanted to be on there, right? Because no one else is. So network effects is one of the dynamics that I talk about. And so the, the underlying thing to understand is that in the industrial age, companies had limits uh, that, that economists had studied for a long time. Um, and that would limit their size in particular ways. And we built rules um, around how companies are, are, are controlled, the yeah, Companies Act, Competition Act, a bunch of other things in the UK that were based on that assumption. Um, in the exponential age, they, they operate very, very differently. And so because they operate differently, you need to establish new rules. Um, you, you, know, you don't need seatbelt laws in a world without cars, right? In the 1750s, uh, when you get cars, you need to have seatbelt laws. So I think you have to understand the the underlying processes, and then you start to say, "Well, really, what are the uh, what are the issues?" And um, and you know that's that's a kind of a, a, a deeper question in terms of what interventions are needed and why are they needed. Um, so, just kind of pulling all that together, what are you optimistic or are you pessimistic around um, the future of work and and whether all this labour saving technology is going to be good for us or bad for us? I think the more people who buy and read my book, the more optimistic we can be, uh, because I think I come up with some ideas um, uh, in there. I mean, I feel that, uh, it, that you know the path to uh, dystopian, uh, pessimistic outcome is really just a path of um, where we 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 don't we choose not to tackle the issue or we tackle the issue in the in the wrong way. Um, what we what we have seen traditionally with 
technologies is that they do create a small number of very, very high-value jobs. Um, and it was true for Ford, Henry Ford, where the, the engineers were very highly skilled and, and worked, uh, you know, were well-paid. But the, op- the factory operators um, were you know, almost driven to lunacy mm. with just screwing what the same nut onto the yeah, same right. bolt uh, day in, hour in, uh, after hour. Um, and, and so w- we've seen that pattern play out before. I think that's quite helpful. I think the second thing that is um, worth noting is that this idea of the quality of job is also a relative thing. It's relative in your geography, your economy, um, you know, a gig job may look really informal and precarious in the UK. It might look much more formal and much more reliable in a market like Nigeria yeah, sure. or India. Yeah. And um, and so, so and the, the other thing, the other th- final thing is what um, you know how in in a kind of historical context, good or bad, will any of these these jobs be? So I think there will be a real risk that. Um, we will establish um, incredibly well-paid um, elite. We already have that uh, who work in the sort of complex end of building these products and services, and you know, a very large pool of people who have quite comparatively terrible jobs. So, in Facebook, for example, where the average compensation is above two hundred thousand dollars a year, um, unless you're a content moderator and you're looking at all of the kind of hideous stuff on Facebook, where you get paid less than thirty grand, uh, and so, so you start to see it. And then the question is, well, how do you um, how do you tackle it, um, and how do you tackle it without hurting the dynamism of um, of your economy, and, and We've been so scared about hurting our create dynamic creatives, right, since Margaret Thatcher came around, that we, ha- we haven't asked the simple things like, should we just raise taxes? Um, should we increase worker rights? Should we allow workers to um, act collectively so they can bargain and get better pay and conditions? And historically, that's been the only way that workers have improved their pay and conditions. Um, should we... Uh, should we ask companies to be transparent about how much people are paid up and down the organization in the same way we ask them to be transparent about gender disparity, we ask them to be transparent about aspects of their governance? And would that also help us close, narrow any of these sort of strains and, and, and concerns? Um, so I think, I think that there are specific things that you, you can do to... Um, to, to, to manage this, where we've got to has been that um, this move towards uh, platform work and also zero hours contracts, which which existed in the UK before, um, has really just been a very avaricious uh, slide down the sort of really really excessive capitalism, um, and 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 actually we we can come in and there are some old things and there are some new things that we need to do to to tackle that and i don't think that that cost comes at the cost to any dynamism in the economy but it comes to uh, uh with the benefit of much improved life chances and quality of life for lots of people um, i'm just curious so i'm going to ask is there like is there one pet policy like that that you would just really love to see happening tomorrow is there like some is there one thing that you're really uh sort of passionately behind well within so within um labor uh, markets and, and employment um 
the 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 pardon me there there are actually two if i can bundle them together so so the first is the um the better treatment of people who are who are gig working we we overstate the benefits that people who are salaried uh, get you know the idea well you'll always get paid because you're on a salary and then you get made redundant and it's like well actually as a gig worker you you had more certainty you get constantly punished as a gig worker for that and i think changing that uh, approach would be really important and then i think the second thing is establishing a a welfare system that recognizes that at moments of very very rapid change employers are going to end up firing people and workers are going to need to retrain. And so the Danes have yeah. this system called flex yeah. security where you can, an employer can get rid of you, but you get paid 80% of your salary provided you're kind of continuing to participate as a useful citizen by looking for work and by training. And, and what you then start to do is you also then go in and start to eliminate the stigma of, you know, the job loss and also eliminate that awful language of scroungers and the idle uh, and the so on that has kind of infused a lot of the way that we've talked about uh, workers for the last 40 years. Where do you sit on universal basic income? The fence. <laughs> the uh, yeah, so you said you're going to be no, there are going to be no mean questions, and uh, I really, <laughs> I've really jelly wobbled uh, around UVI uh, in the book. Um, because uh, it's, I think that um, what you see in advanced, increasingly rich societies um, is that they tend to make more and more comprehensive provision because they can, right? They clean the streets. They don't leave the horse manure on the streets. And so you'd expect that to continue to happen in any society with any sort of sense of social decorum. Um, I don't have a I, my a, any objection I have to UBI is not about whether it would make people uh, lazy uh, and and idle. As it is, uh, last year sixty one percent of Americans didn't pay any federal income tax. Right, so that's already more than half uh, who aren't contributing to the federal purse. So, so w why I slightly dodged it is because I think it's so um, politically difficult and contentious for people who, who don't like it. And it's presented a little bit as a cure-all for people who, who do. And I th just think the world's a bit more complicated than that. And what I wanted to finish with was um, um, obviously just bringing it back to you personally. It just feels like you do such a wide range of things. And I wondered if there was any particular thing that you do that you enjoy the most and also is there something that you do where you feel this is the thing that i do that has the biggest impact just in in your own work and your own experience of work of all the things that i do they're all they're all connected to uh to the main thing that i do that has the, has the impact i think we're going through a transition to the exponential age i think it's going to need uh new ideas and new institutions and new uh, businesses and uh, I, uh, what I do in my work with my newsletter and my podcast is I use those to learn and to share my learnings, uh, and then I work with with entrepreneurs by investing in them to help them build those businesses as part of the the, the transition. Um, so it all it hangs together in my head, even if it doesn't um, 
necessarily look, you know, maybe looks a bit disaggregate and diffuse from the outside, but they are all meant to sit together and be part of this change that we are, we're, we're, we're going through and we're kind of privileged to be part of. But the real thing that I do that I love is that I run. Oh, really? <laughs> huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell me so, more, are you training um, for half marathons and marathons and stuff like that? I could, I could run 150 metres uh, in July 2020. And uh, in, in August 21, I ran my first 16 and a half kilometres. Uh, wow. And uh, cool. I absolutely uh, love it. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I would do that if I didn't have to do all this other stuff. Yeah. So you've got kind of an exponential fitness thing going on, um, which feels like... I can't keep it up. It was 100x improvement in one year. That would mean I'd be running yeah. 1,000 kilometres every every Sunday, which isn't going to happen. Exactly. We'll look, we'll look forward to uh, hearing about that in a couple of years and how far you've progressed with it. Um, so the book is Exponential. I'm going to flash it up yep. on the screen here. And the thing is, it's got such a lovely silver typeface thing that um, it's quite hard to get all the words on the screen without one of them <laughs> yes, being too shiny yeah. and you can't read it. Um, but uh, if people want to find out more about what you do, so you have this amazing weekly newsletter with 200,000 people on it and you've got a podcast and stuff. So um, just give us all the, the various places that people can go and find out more and continue some of these really fascinating conversations. No, no, thank you, uh, Graham. Yeah, so the, the book is at your Exponential at any of the bookstores as, as usual. Um, the podcast and newsletter is Exponential View. You can just pop that into your search engine. It'll be the first um thing that comes up <clears throat> pardon me and uh, uh if you want to follow me on twitter it's uh, azim which is a-z-e-e-m fantastic thank you so much for being on beyond busy my pleasure it was great thanks very much graham so thanks again to azim for being on the show and as i said at the beginning there you know before when i first said yes to having azim on the podcast i have to admit i was quite intimidated by um, by the topic and you know whether i'd have enough to say and good questions to ask him and all that kind of thing but the book is just so it's just so like humble in the way that it sets it out like there's some big data stuff in there you know um, and sort of you know pages that look like an economics textbook but actually there's some really good you know very clear writing and narrative in there so I implore you to go and buy Exponential and don't be put off by the subject matter because it's really important. It's just a really important topic. So, uh, yeah, if you enjoy the episode, do go and check out um, Azim's book and also Exponential View. Sign up to that mailing list, as I have done. So um, I'll see you there with Exponential View. And thanks, as ever, to our sponsors for the show, Think Productive. And if you want to support Think Productive, you can uh, get a ticket to one of the, the events that we talked about uh, in that little middle section there. Um, and Think Productive also have a, a whole range of different workshops and uh, learning solutions for companies. So go to thinkproductive.com to find out more. And thanks to Emily and Pavel, my uh, trusty team on the podcast who make everything happen behind the scenes. Um, as ever, just really appreciating uh, their support and help with making all this happen. So we're getting into the autumn and uh, it really feels like stuff is turning, right? You know, the weather feels like it's it's about to turn and it really feels like we're getting back down to some serious work, a little bit of normality, uh, keeping an eye obviously on everything that's happening as well. And um, yeah, just hope you're 
you're back in the groove and just enjoying the work that you're doing. Um, if you want to sign up for my weekly email, it's called Rev Up for the Week. Just go to grahamalcott.com and you'll see uh, a little form on every page. And you can also get a link to that in the show notes. Um, but basically, the idea of that email is just to send you one positive or productive idea for the week ahead. So it comes on a Sunday evening. And so as we get back into the saddle, if that feels like it will be helpful for you, just to have a little nudge from me on a Sunday evening, ready for the week ahead, uh, just head to graymalcott.com and sign up there. We're going to be back with, we've got a really good episode uh, in two weeks' time. Daisy Dowling is the expert on being a working parent. Do you know what? It's probably the topic I've been asked the most about in terms of me writing a book. And it's always been the topic that I have shied away from writing a book about. Um, partly because I, I parent in a very different way. Uh, so I'm a 50-50 single dad. Uh, so I'm not with his mum. And uh, he has some special needs. I just feel like my parenting experience is just not normal. Like it's not, you know, whose is. But mine just does not feel like it's in any way uh, like a typical experience. And I kind of feel like I can't really... Uh, write a book uh, from that perspective but Daisy has done it and you know what she's also done it in a way that is applicable to everyone including single dads and uh, you know people with um, you know kids with special needs and all sorts of stuff Um, it's a really good book it's called Work Parent she's on in two weeks time so make sure you're subscribed uh, make sure you're liking and commenting on wherever you get your podcast We'll be back in two weeks time. So get beyondbusy.com for all the show notes and everything else. And we'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now.